Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, this morning we are going to continue in our series in Exodus. I haven't been there for about four weeks. And so just the next passage uh, before us in our uh, sequential study is chapter 18. So do you follow with me in your Bibles and uh, consider this morning the first 12 verses of this uh, chapter. So Exodus chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliza, he said, the God of my father's father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming, uh, coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So just so far, uh, the word of God. And again, let's just bow as we pray. Lord, we come again this morning and praying again also that you would lead us in this passage, in the preaching of your word. And I do pray that your Holy Spirit do his work as comforter, as counselor, and even as the one who convicts us of our daily need of you. We commend each other to you, praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is my first uh, time back in the pulpit after these numbers of weeks of grieving. Uh, still grieving, and I'm sure that's going to continue for some time. But having thought about our experience my, and my family's experience, I have described it in this way. I have in recent days come through what I can only describe as a season of conscious helplessness. I've chosen those words very deliberately. An awareness 
of my own incapacity and insufficiency. Those of you who don't know, I think most do, it has been almost three years of watching Carol, my wife, her mind and her body deteriorate. Uh, Before that time, for all the years that I've known her, she was a very active person, very vibrant personality. I'm kind of a bit of a deadbeat kind of a person, but she was alive and extroverted, uh, capable in ministry, public ministry, uh, eloquent in speech. We watched her lose all of that. And there were milestones along the way, slowly but surely deteriorating. Eventually, she could speak no longer. She became mute, could not express even the simplest of feelings or expressions. In the last days, struggling to eat, battling to breathe, and then she died. Now, I describe that because there's an important question I'm asking, and I would want to help you in any situation that you find yourself in like this. What do you do with that? What do you do with a situation where there is this conscious helplessness? And particularly in the light of death, with what follows in the hollowness of the pain and the grief that one feels. Well, some people suggest that, and if I may use these words, suck it up and get on with it. Pull up your socks and live your life. Others, and I'm going to focus rather on the other opinion, others like a well-known and beloved hymn writer, Isaac Watts. I think many of you know of the hymn writer Isaac Watts. Uh, He sings a better response. It's that response that I'm going to use as an illustration of this passage this morning. It was a song, they are words that he wrote in the context when the church was being persecuted. There was much difficulty and hardship because there were those who were not willing to submit to the deviant nature of the state church. They were called nonconformists and they were therefore being persecuted by not only the government but also by the so-called established church. And so he, he writes this hymn as a hymn of encouragement, and, 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 and he does so in the context, as I said, of great difficulty, and, and the hymn, I believe, is still relevant to us and for us today. The hymn's first line goes like this, O God, our help in ages past. O God, our help in ages past. If you know Psalm 90, this particular hymn is really an echo of that particular psalm where where the psalmist has the intention, the Holy Spirit at work in seeking to give people assurance, uh, reminding them of the great promises that we have in God, and then, of course, the anticipation of hope in the future. Now, if you don't know the hymn, I'm going to uh, just repeat a couple of the phrases of the first verse. If you do know the hymn, uh, just appreciate something of the expression. Oh God, our our help in ages past, our hope in years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. 
Now, the point I want to make uh, in this introduction this morning is uh, standing in a place of conscious and desperate need is not unique to Isaac Watts and the nonconformists of that particular era. It's not unique to myself and others who are grieving the loss of a loved one. It actually is true of all of us. Whether you know it or not, we human beings are people of dust. We are desperately, desperately dependent creatures. And so as we turn to Exodus 18 this morning, I want us to see that Moses in conversation, there's a conversation, there's, there's this uh, exchange that is going on between Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. But we will see in this passage today that not only did Moses understand helplessness, and I want to add the adjective conscious helplessness, he understood that as a real living fact, but he also experienced the intervening good hand of God. Providing their much-needed help. And so I'm going to go right back to the beginning of Exodus to help us understand the context and where Moses' mind would have been. And I want us to speak in the first place this morning about the broad scope of helplessness. Just the broad scope of helplessness. In their particular case, and there are two aspects to this helplessness, the first being helplessness in bondage. Just spare a thought. For those, Egypt, those uh, people of Israel. There came a time, we read in uh, Exodus, where a new king of Egypt arose who did not know about Joseph. And at that particular time, in that particular season, the tables turned for the people of Israel. From having a, a well-provided-for good experience in Egypt, suddenly they became subjected to harsh Slavery. They became slaves of the king. And so this new king, who was threatened by their growing numbers, implemented a sequence of cruel, repressive acts, plunging the nation of Israel into a position of harsh slavery and helplessness. His evil intent comes to us in Exodus chapter 1, verse 10. Let us deal shrewdly with them. In other words, he gave a concentrated effort in his mind to undermine and, in fact, to, 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 to repress this people. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves under a whip and made their lives bitter with hard service. And then, of course, you know about the midwives being told to uh, kill the baby boys. And when that didn't succeed, he went on to tell them, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Imagine yourself in that situation. That's the context. That's what Moses has in his mind. And, and to take it even further, as I speculate about these people, them pleading for relief, as people would do today on the basis of human rights or them uh, accessing the constitutional court, or hoping for sympathy from the international uh, community of the Middle East. These options were not open to these people at all. They just simply had no access to help. They were desperate. They were in a situation of desperate helplessness. 
No possibility of a young Hebrew to change direction in his particular or her particular career. No chance of immigration to go to better pastures or greener pastures. No opportunity for a weekend break at the seaside. They could do nothing at all. And we need to understand that desperateness that they suffered in that situation. No ability, no power, and I wonder if they even had the will to remedy their plight of helplessness. But not only their helplessness uh, from bondage, but I want us also to see their helplessness in sojourning. Now that word is important because it speaks about uh, movement, it speaks about traveling, and, and, and them being liberated from the cruel hand of Pharaoh, where they escaped through the Red Sea, and they saw the horse and riders being uh, drowned in the sea, did not bring an end to their challenges and to the hardships that they faced as they sojourned in the desert en route to the promised land. In many more ways than they would have wanted, their helplessness would be repeatedly exposed. Moses and the people of Israel knew that they were needy people. Once they crossed the Red Sea, they still had a way to travel. We know to get to Canaan, they still had to face multiple hardships along the way. And we know that their trials, we've done this in previous sermons, their trials came in different shapes and sizes. There was an occasion where there was no water. Some commentators speculate that there was a mass of something like two million people that were sojourning. What do you do when you can't provide uh, water for all these people? Uh, another occasion, there was not enough food. There was also, as a result of this internal dissatisfaction that resulted in, in grumbling and, and whining. And then they wake up one morning to find themselves being attacked by the Amalekites. But you get the point? There is problem, there is a challenge, there is trouble that comes again and again and again. And not to forget that sojourning was not a two-week exercise. Forty years. An entire generation. And so amongst the many lessons that any Israelite could not avoid in their life experience is the fact that people, them as people, but we as people, are not in any way invincible or self-sufficient. We are dependent creatures. The comprehensive scope of their helplessness was bigger than any single person or bigger than any group can handle. Well, having steered this wide-ranging scope of helplessness in the face, it's no surprise to me that after greeting his father-in-law, Jethro, Moses cannot help himself by recounting, and I'm getting now to my second point, and we're going to look at the passage now, the comprehensive provision from God. There is provision from bondage. God addresses their most desperate need. In Exodus chapter 18, verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law that all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake 
all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Now, I can only imagine the kind of conversation or the content of the conversation that must have taken place. Moses turning to Jethro and telling him about that amazing experience at the bush that never, that was not consumed by the fire. Speaking about something of, of, of the nature of God revealed in that, that incident, that, that supernatural incident. And then God sending him to Pharaoh, telling him to let his people go. This runaway person that comes back as, as, as in support of the people of Israel, having the cheek or the audacity to go to the king, the Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph and tell him, hey, let my... Telling him all these stories, the miraculous signs, the plagues from the hand of God. I would imagine the content included him speaking of the angel of death. That horrible, that awful uh, experience that night. But then speaking of the protection of those who had blood uh, sprinkled over the doorposts and lintels of their houses. And then as they escaped soon after, Pharaoh changing his mind. Them as a nation being trapped in the sea on the one side of them and the desert on the other side of them. And then the miraculous parting, God parting the Red Sea, enabling them to escape. And then the drowning of the enemies finally safe on the other shore. Moses and anyone who was prepared to think about what had taken place surely would conclude nothing other than salvation is of the Lord. But that's a phrase you need to think about a lot. Salvation is of the Lord. <laughs> I believe if Moses had the technology, the young people, mostly young people, I see some older people also, but if, if he had the kind of technology like Instagram and, and Twitter, uh, he would have posted a link. And, and, and the link would have been back to the song that he, they sang after the delivery. Uh, out, of, out of bondage, when God brought them out of bondage. Remember back in Exodus 15, I will, sing and, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my, Father, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. There is no doubt in the mind of Moses as he shares with his father-in-law salvation, the release from bondage as a result of, of God's intervention, God's provision. But Moses' testimony, as we read it in this passage, goes beyond the release from bondage. God continued to provide help for his people on their journey beyond slavery, beyond bondage as they, there's that word again, as they sojourn, as they travel, as they spend these weeks and months and years in anticipation of reaching the promised land. And so secondly, not only provision from bondage, but also provision in sojourning. And Moses told his father-in-law, verse 8, all the hardship that come upon them in the way. Along the way. They, they faced hardship. They faced difficulty in, 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 in how the Lord had delivered them. And so having crossed the Red Sea, there was this journey that they needed to travel. And they discovered, they soon discovered that this journey would not be trouble free. That it would be difficult, that there would be twists, that there would be bends, that there would be unexpected hardship. 
You know, of course, uh, they traveled, and after three days in the desert, they could not find water. And then when they did find water, it was undrinkable. It was bitter. God provided. He turned the bitter water sweet so that they could be nourished. It's not long after that. We've seen this already as we've looked at previous passages, the discontent, uh, the expression of these uh, released slaves wanting to go back and eat at the pots of Pharaoh, feeling that they had insufficient food. But once again, God graciously gives to these undeserving people uh, quail and manna. God intervened. And the interesting thing I find is that he did not just provide for a single day, but he provided for the entire journey, for the entire sojourning of 40 years of wandering in the desert. And then at Rephidim, they expected to rest. They expected to be refreshed before they continued on their journey. But again, there was no water to be found. And despite their whining and despite their grumbling, God graciously provided. This time through Moses, who struck a rock, resulting in water flowing from it. Just to show that it's not only internal or localized struggles, they wake up one morning to find that they're being attacked by the Amalekites. And it was a tough battle. And in it, they learn that crucial lesson of their dependence on God. Remember with Moses having his arms held up by others when he could no longer do it. As they come before God, God enabled them to overcome the enemy. Moses, here's where I'm going to start with some application for us. Moses was able to relay a wonderful story. Not fabricated story. A story of true intervention from God into their lives as his people. He could speak and give testimony to the fact that every good and perfect gift is from God and no other. He testified to, being, to God being the source of their comprehensive provision. Again, understanding salvation is of the Lord. So that brings me to our third point. And I want to uh, elaborate now. And, and under this heading, Christians have a similar story to tell. If you're a believer this, believer here this morning, you have a story to tell. You should have a story to tell. And so the bondage and the helplessness of Israel and Egypt under Pharaoh, in fact, is a helpful picture of the bondage of men and women under sin, under Satan. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 15, speaks, like, uh, speaks of this. He says, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, born into a condition of lostness and spiritual death, as spoken of by Paul in the Ephesians chapter 2, dead in trespasses and sins, and in their behavior, their deviant behavior, following the course of this world, uh, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so we need to understand that, that the world, that, that we all born into a condition, in, into a state of being in a, having this terrible plight, in a situation of spiritual bondage. 
where you can do nothing to escape from your predicament. Helplessness. And I want to urge that on you this morning. If you are an unbeliever, you need to understand conscious helplessness in and of yourself. You can do nothing to rescue yourself from your position. But here's the good news. Romans 6 verse 17. But thanks be to God, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Or 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God has provided salvation. God has a saving solution for people who are in spiritual bondage. All people of every nation, of every generation, under spiritual bondage. God has a solution for helpless sinners. And the solution is through the work, the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. The crucifixion, the resurrection, brings about the reality that Men and women and children can be brought from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life. From bondage to evil to freedom to be, become slaves of righteousness. Again, back to Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, that's the crucifixion, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But there's a lot more, a lot more to say. It's not all that there is just this provision of being born again. There's more than just that initial redemption at the start of the Christian life. If you want to liken that, as it were, to the crossing of the Red Sea. Because after conversion, there is a journey to travel. You are traveling a journey. The span of your life and the span of my life, it is a road that we are walking. We're traveling as believers, ultimately to get to what John Bunyan called the celestial city. The Bible speaks of us being uh, those who walk towards uh, heaven and to that place that, that Jesus is prepared or preparing. And so my point is, while it's a wonderful blessing to know I've been born again, and I hope it's a blessing that you can say, I've been born again, you do need to know that still ahead of you there is a race to be completed. There, is still, is a, there still are going to be battles, battles to fight. You and I will face struggles. Some of those struggles will be from within, Sin, those remaining marks of sin crouching at the door. We will face attacks from the outside, from without, where the kingdom of darkness and the prince of the air will seek to undermine and wreck your faith. That's the intention, to distract you from Jesus, to distract you from worshiping God, seeing the benefit and blessing of the gospel. And so in this world, we will have trouble. As Christians, we are not excluded from disappointment or brokenness or illness. Rudolf, it's great to see you here today, brother. I thought of you when I was writing this. Persecution. 
poverty. And then finally, death. Then we enter the heavenly city. And I want us to see this morning, as with Moses and the people of Israel, God provides for us in a helpless estate. God provides for us on our sojourning to heaven. Not necessarily removing the challenges, not taking them away, but sometimes giving us the strength and the grace that we need, looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, folk, I want to confess something over here. In the midst of my struggle over these past weeks, I have had to reconsider and rethink and and, and ask myself the question, do I believe what I teach, what I read in the Bible? We must be so careful. It's one of the lessons I've learned through the season of difficulty is do I really believe these things, not from a position of strength, but from a position of weakness and brokenness? Is Jesus not only the author, but is he the perfecter of my faith? We can, can, dear friends, know something, and I'm convinced of this. Know something of what I want to call, and I have called this in the past, the active or operational grace of Jesus. How does that work? Well, we receive this grace, this provision from the hand of Jesus, in, first of all, understanding there's an access that we have to Him as our Savior, as our high priest. And then as we're told again in the Scriptures, and, and the question again is, do you believe the Scriptures? Do you receive them by faith? The, the response from Him in His ascended role as high priest Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Isn't that a blessing? To know that the King of kings and the Lord of lords understands that he knows that he is able to sympathize. That is, there's this, this understanding. But we, we have one who in every respect has been tempted or tested as we are yet without sin. If you know that passage, he goes on to speak about us approaching the throne of grace and receiving in our time of need, grace and mercy. That can't just be a scripture that we memorize. It must be the active operation of grace in the lives of God's people at conversion, but also as we sojourn towards heaven through the difficulties. Day by day, it's good to know that he really knows. Not only does he know, he identifies with what we're going through. And then there is this dispensing. There is this giving. There is this providing of grace. And again, I ask myself, how does that work? How does he do it? Well, through the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God in the believer. The Spirit of God amongst the believers. And, and, and just much can be said of the work of the Spirit, but let me at least say this morning, didn't Jesus speak of the Holy Spirit as the one who is comforter? Didn't Jesus speak of the Holy Spirit as the one who is counselor? The one who speaks 
the truth and reminds us of the truth of God into a brokenness and, 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 and struggling situation? Isn't it the Holy Spirit that work, is working in a brother and a sister that prompts a message of encouragement? Why is it that you suddenly think of somebody in need and you give them a phone call? Why is it that you think of somebody and you drop them a note or a, a WhatsApp message or, or, or some kind of communication? That's not just humans thinking about others. This is the Spirit of God working, reminding one and another of the many promises in the Word. There's a verse I've quoted to many over these past years in the church, and somebody came and saw me this week and reminded me of what I reminded them. Psalm 56. You have counted my tossings. Speaking of God, you've put my tears in your bottle. And the point is, I've filled so many bottles with tears, I'm telling you, I, I don't even know there's a pantry big enough. And then I learned something else. Another colleague of mine sent me a, a, a link to a presentation on grief. And this person was speaking about grief and made the comment, there's a difference between the way men and women grieve. So I listened attently attentively, and went on to say that men don't cry. And I thought, am I a man? <laughs> there are times when the Spirit of God just gives a deep sense of peace. And so I want to encourage you this morning as I preach to myself, knowing in our sojourning along the way, the faithfulness of God. In our pain, O oh God, our help in ages past. In our doubts, when faith wavers, O oh God, our help in ages past. In our brokenness, our help. God, God, you're our help in loneliness or illness or divorce or disappointment or poverty. In, in, in grief, the grief, God, you are my help in, as you've done in ages past. And so as we look back to Moses and we do as Moses did, we believers also have a story to tell. Regardless of our situation, we can always tell of Jesus and his redeeming work on the cross. Historical fact, looking back 2,000 years, there was a time, there was a day, there was a season. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and he achieved salvation, became the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. You can tell that to anybody. We heard B'nai EE3 this morning. We, can, we have a story to tell. But surely also, in the course of our lives, Surely we will also be able to tell of the mountains we've had to climb. I've been helped by those in the church who've climbed the mountain of losing a spouse. I lost my parents 17 years, 18 years ago, two of them, and I grieved. But folk, I'm telling you, losing a spouse is in another category altogether. And those in the church who have lost a spouse have come alongside of me, some of them, and told me their stories. The dark valleys of despair, we can tell of that as God helps us and, and holds us. You know when we can't hold ourselves and, 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 and He holds us and, and carries us? Is, isn't this the God that we serve? Uh, 
And so fourthly, and, and this is my last point this morning, this passage ought to prompt us to get involved in telling the story. Again, you may wonder why you should bother telling the story of Jesus, whether the story of the cross or the testimony of his work in the unfolding of your life has any relevance. Because we kind of think, I think of myself, I'm an ordinary kind of person. Well, there are two reasons in this passage, and there are others in different parts of the Bible, but I'll stick with the two reasons from our passage this morning. Why you and I ought to get involved in telling the story of Jesus historically and experientially, how he got you, how he carried you through your difficulty. Number one, people benefit. Other people benefit. I don't know if you noticed, but in the opening verse of chapter 18, Jethro is introduced and identified as the priest of Midian. Why? He was a servant of a pagan god. His unbelief up to that point in time is confirmed to us a little later in the passage in verse 11. Now I know. In other words, before I didn't know. This guy was lost spiritually. Up until then, he was not sure about who God really is. He assumed that the God of Israel was a tribal or only a tribal deity, God of the Israelites, like the gods of the Egyptians or the gods of the Midianites. And he, like many people today, probably thought that all religions are more or less equal. Worship any God you like as long as you're sincere. Have you heard people say that? Man, he's sincere, God will understand. No, God won't understand. It matters to God. It matters to God who you worship. It does matter who you trust for your salvation. And we know as we have the scriptures, the record of, 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 of redemption history, God sent his only son to the world to be the one and only Savior. One and only Savior. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, just one example. Uh, salvation, and there is salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Moses unashamedly tells Jethro of the amazing saving work of God. And as a result of hearing the truth of God's saving acts, Jethro's spiritual eyes are opened. He benefits Jethro puts his trust in the God of Israel. And in a word, we can say that Jethro was saved. We could say that Jethro benefited from hearing the saving work of God. He became a believer. Now, again, I must be quick now, but have a look at verse 9. We see Jethro rejoicing in all the good that God had done to Israel, delivering them out of the hands of the Egyptians. In verse 10, we see Jethro praising God who delivered them from the Egyptians. In verse 11, we get to the crux of the issue where Jethro makes a public profession of faith in the one true God. Acknowledging the Lord, the Lord is the only true God and is greater than all gods. 
And in verse 12, we see the culmination of this. Jethro becoming part of a worshiping community. He brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. There was a benefit. And it's not just that we take this from Exodus chapter 18. We have the Apostle Paul speaking of the value of telling the gospel story. Right at the beginning of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is something I declare to other people. And if you know anything of the life of Paul and his missionary journeys and the record we have in the book of Acts, he did everything he could to tell the story of Jesus. Understanding that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We also have a story to tell. And it's a story to each other. It's a story we need to tell to the nations of the atoning work of Jesus, but also of his keeping and his caring and his enabling in the journey as we sojourn towards heaven. Why? So that others may benefit. Because the Bible also tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Right, last point, second reason why we ought to tell the story. God is on it. That, that ought to be important, eh? God is on it. Well, I learned a new word recently, and uh, sadly I learned it in the context of pastoral leadership. The word is narcissistic. You know that word? Well, uh, to help me, I just typed in signs and symptoms of narcissism. And I thought I'd mention them here this morning. Signs and symptoms of a narcissistic personality disorder. Seemingly a disorder common amongst pastors and leaders. That's my opinion, my observation. Well, what are these signs and symptoms? Number one, a grandiose sense of self-importance. Number two, lives in a fantasy world that supports their delusions of grandeur. Number three, needs a constant needs constant praise and admiration, has a sense of entitlement, exploits others without guilt or shame, lastly, frequently demeans, intimidates, bullies, and belittles others. Now, folks, my point is that ought not to be true. It should not be true of any Christian. Never mind, it should never be true of those who are under shepherds of the flock of God. Moses tells the story of God's kindness and generous, uh, generosity without drawing attention to himself. I, I want you to see that. People who think that, they, uh, that God won't be able to build his kingdom without them. How's, how do they think like that? Moses, if, any, if, if there was anybody who could draw attention to themselves... But he didn't. He didn't. He gives the credit to God. God is identified as the Savior and the provider and, and the keeper. And, and if you just look at the passage, I always do this when I do preparation. I look for, for frequently occurring words. And the focus and attention is given to God in these 12 verses. He, Moses does not congratulate himself. He does not exalt himself. He doesn't see himself as, this, as the, the responsible hero or the significant leader. Just, and I'm going to go through these verses. Just look at them. Heard of all what God had done. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. 
All the Lord had done. How the Lord delivered them. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you. Now that the Lord is greater than all gods. Brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. The elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so in Exodus 18, as Moses tells the story with the right perspective, God is glorified. There's a motive for you to share about what Jesus has done. How Jesus has carried you. His spirit works within you. When we tell the story of Jesus, always understanding. And, and that's why I started with I did in this message. Don't leave here today and forget our broad scope of conscious helplessness. Of God's comprehensive provision. See those two there in antagonism. Wonderful provision from God. If we understand those two points, we will not be tempted to a grandiose sense of self-importance. Well, let me close. Dear friends, there's no need for us as believers to just suck it up. Pull up your socks. No. We don't have to suck up the troubles that come our way. God has been faithful down through the ages to his children, to his servants, repeatedly, without exception. And so therefore, we, in the midst of our conscious helplessness, also can know something of anticipating and expecting and experiencing the help of God. In the present and also the future. We don't feel it. I, don't, I, I can tell you now. I'm still crying. I constantly want to cry. But I know this. The second verse of, of, of uh, Isaac Watts' hymn. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone. And our defense is sure. So, Lord, as we come, as I come, even with my own incapacity and insufficiency, but knowing in the context of your gospel, of your grace, of your faithfulness, your compassions that never fail, that indeed, Lord, you do carry us when we feel that we're unable to go ahead. And so be gracious to us. I do want to pray for those this morning who are in a particular place of conscious helplessness. May they know the ministry May each of us know the ministry of your spirit, we pray, in that comfort, in that counsel, in that great sense of peace in reminding us of the many promises. And so bless us and keep us as we go forward, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.